Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started. Well, the political season is rapidly advancing. And as you know, political candidates for government offices are out now trying to convince us to vote for them. This gives us, the voter, a great opportunity to quiz candidates, to bring up issues that are important to us. And believe it or not, a lot of these issues involve science. They revolve around science. Now, there's a nonprofit organization called ScienceDebate.org, and their mission is to encourage a responsible and worthwhile discussion with political candidates about issues involving science. Let me read you the mission statement for ScienceDebate.org. ScienceDebate.org asks candidates, elected officials, the public, and the media to focus more on science policy issues of vital importance to modern life. As a registered 501c3, Science Debate is nonpartisan. We encourage everyone to ask their candidates to discuss and debate their science and technology policies for the well-being of our nation and society. That was a quote from the mission statement for ScienceDebate.org. Well, this Science Debate group has recently published a series of questions. It's 10 questions that they would like to hear from every candidate for either the House of Representatives, the Senate, or any governors. And so I thought I would read these 10 questions in case you happen to run into one of these candidates sometime in the future. It's also a good reminder of how science and technology impacts all of us. So here's the first question that ScienceDebate.org suggests we ask House, Senate, and gubernatorial candidates. It's about innovation. They say, science and technology has been responsible for half of the growth of the U.S. economy since World War II. What role, if any, should government play in stimulating innovative science and technology so we can continue to benefit from them? Their second question is, what are your views on climate change and how would they affect your energy policies, if at all? Their third question is about cybersecurity. What will you do to protect America from cyber attacks while also protecting personal privacy? The fourth question from ScienceDebate.org that we're supposed to ask our candidates is about mental health. Mental illness often leads to drug addiction, crime, and suicide and costs America more than $300 billion a year. What mental health policies Will you support if you are elected? Next is about education. They ask, in an age dominated by complex science and technology, how can we ensure that students receive adequate STEM education? That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The sixth question we should ask candidates has to do with water. The long-term security of water supplies is threatened by aging infrastructure pollution, climate variability, and a growing population. 
What should government do to ensure access to clean water? Next has to do with food. How would you manage American agriculture so it provides healthy and affordable food grown in a just and sustainable way? The eighth question we're supposed to ask candidates for political office has to do with space. What should America's goals be for space exploration and Earth observation, and what steps would you take to achieve them? Next, we should be asking about oceans. They say, large areas of our oceans are polluted, acidification is damaging coral reefs and other habitats, and overfishing could wipe out certain species and diminish this vital source of food. What will you do to improve ocean health? And the tenth question we're supposed to ask candidates for the House, Senate, or Governor's Office, I feel like David Letterman here, Question number 10 has to do with scientific integrity. Politicians are disputing settled science and firing government scientists for political reasons. How will you foster a culture that respects scientific evidence and protects scientists? Well, that's it. Those are the 10 questions we're supposed to be asking candidates in the future. If you can't remember them all, you can go to sciencedebate.org at sciencedebateoneword.org and you can get a copy of those. They're all really good issues. I hope they do come up in this campaign. I'm also hoping we have a very good turnout of voters in the next election. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of a segment we call How'd We Ever Get That? The goal of How'd We Ever Get That? is to demonstrate how scientists, mathematicians, engineers, people like that, how they've influenced our everyday lives. You might not think that science has much to do with you, but you would be wrong. Science affects us all every single day of our lives. Today's example of how'd we ever get that is... Google! Sorry, I don't know how to make it more dramatic than that. There are 1.9 billion websites on the internet right now, and that's about 45 billion web pages. And that number is increasing really fast, about 200 new websites every minute. So if you are an internet user and you want to search through all of these different websites for some specific piece of information, how do you do that? Well, you're probably going to use some type of a web browser. And three out of every four people who are using the web today, the web browser they're using is Google. Now, Google didn't really become a company until 1998, whereas the first websites were established back in 1991. So that means that there were other web browsers being used the first six or seven years that the World Wide Web was active. And only then did Google come on the scene. So there were other web browsers available during those years before Google came along. And the way these web browsers worked was basically how many times the search term that you give it is actually used in the web page. So for instance, back in 1995, if I searched for the term newspaper, the websites that would have come back to me after searching through the World Wide Web would have been those pages that had the word newspaper in them the most often. 
and that might not be what I really want. Nowadays, using Google, for instance, if you search for the term newspaper, you'll get websites for the New York Times and the Louisville Courier Journal. I remember some of these early search engines. Alta Vista, Yahoo, Webcrawler, Lycos, Dogpile, Ask Jeeves. These were all fine sites, but I do remember getting a lot of irrelevant results. So when Google came along, I latched on to it. Now don't go turning off the radio because you think this is some grand commercial for Google.com because it's not. Later in the story, I'll present a lot of criticisms and concerns about Google. My goal today is just to give some of the history and background about how Google came to be. The internet is a very powerful source of information and we need to know how it works. So these earlier search engines before Google came along, the way they worked is they just evaluated each web page based on how many times your search term was used. So in the case of searching the term newspaper, if one website just had the word newspaper frequently, then it would come up more often. Whereas the New York Times webpage might not have the actual word newspaper at all because it's literally giving the news. It's not talking about itself. And I remember when I was a webmaster, I put together some websites about botany and I always had to make sure that the plant that I was describing was named frequently in the web page. In fact, in the old days, you used to go to web pages and at the bottom of the web page, you can see where the webmaster just put every possible synonym, every possible search term that someone might use so that they could artificially lead that person to their own web page. So it was crazy. Just because a particular search term is listed a lot in the web page doesn't mean that that is actually the page you are looking for. So to go back to where we were before Google became on the scene. At that time at Stanford University in the computer science department, there are these two graduate students, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Now, Larry Page was a new graduate student and as every grad student does, they, he was looking for a thesis project to do for his doctoral degree. He wanted to do something worthwhile. He was interested in the World Wide Web because in 1995, when he started, that was growing very rapidly. This is the time when personal computers started showing up in people's homes. And so the personal computers were getting cheaper and more popular. And so Larry Page figured World Wide Web is going to be very useful and very relevant for a lot of people. So this young graduate student, Larry Page, in the mid-1990s at Stanford University decided to study the growth and the structure of the internet. So Page decided to study how web pages were hyperlinked to one another. Hyperlinks are those little words that are usually in a different color that when you put the cursor over it and push it, it takes you to a different web page. Larry Page's father was a professor of computer science at Michigan State University, so he realized that these hyperlinks are important. So Larry Page came from an academic background because of his father being a professor. And as you probably know, academia is all about publishing books and papers and other peer-reviewed uh, publications. And in academia, 
there's two things when you consider. First of all, yeah, you want to publish research papers, but the other thing that academics are interested in is the impact of that publication. How many other researchers are reading and citing and using your publication? That's called impact. So if a scientist publishes a paper that not very many people read, that other people just don't get much out of, it doesn't have the impact that a seminal paper has. A seminal paper would be one that provides new information that other people find useful, and then they cite those publications in their own publication. And so Larry Page probably realized that a website that other websites link to is more worthwhile than a website that is ignored by other web pages. So Larry Page developed an algorithm called PageRank. An algorithm is just a formula or a system, a model. And what PageRank did was determine how the 10 million web pages that were on the web at that time, how they were linked to one another. The idea was to rank each page by how many other websites are linked to them. This is where Sergey Brin comes in. Sergey was born in Russia, but immigrated to the United States. Both of his parents were scientists. One was a NASA scientist, and the other was a mathematics professor. So Brin was surrounded by math growing up, and turns out he was a child prodigy in math. He was very good at math. And so he hooked up with Page to develop a way to determine the prestige of a web page based on the number of hyperlinks to it. And he really perfected the algorithm for doing this. And Bren's algorithm was better than Page's because it calculated the prestige, the value, the uh, power, the influence of a web page, not only on how many web links there were to it, but the prestige of those web links. And so he, he amplified his prestige evaluation by not just looking at the hyperlinks to a specific page, but how many hyperlinks were going to the pages that were hyperlinked to that page. And so he went two steps out in calculating the value of each of these 10 million web pages that were on the internet at that time. To do this, Bren and Page applied the Bayesian theorem. Bayesian mathematics is a mathematical approach developed by a Presbyterian minister who also happened to be a philosopher statistician named Thomas Bay. He lived in the 1700s. They don't make people like this anymore. And the Bayesian theory is a way to calculate probabilities of an event. So the mathematician is trying to predict the probability of something based on the data available at that time. But the problem is, that the data could be flawed. There could be problems with the data. So how do you take that into account when you're calculating the probability of something happening? That's where Bayesian theory comes in. So there's a big difference between a person having cancer and the results of their cancer test. You know, you can have false positive results on your cancer test, and you can have false negative results on your cancer test. And so Bayesian mathematics is trying to take all that into account. 
Whew, so it gets pretty complicated. Now remember, Page developed this algorithm called PageRank, and then working with Bryn, in 1996, the two of them released a search engine called BackRub, and BackRub appeared to really work. When you made a search of the internet on BackRub, the results would be listed on a new web page, and they would list the ones who were linked with the highest number of high-quality websites on the top of the page. And as you scroll down the result page using BackRub, the websites linked would have either fewer links or the quality of those links would be lower. Another valuable characteristic of BackRub was that this program could be scaled up. So as the World Wide Web kept growing, it could work. It could handle it even as the Internet's getting larger and larger every day. In fact, with the algorithm they're using, it was actually more reliable the larger the web gets. So the program actually works better now than it did 20 years ago because there's more links to measure. There's more data out there for it to evaluate. Now, it's important to mention that the money for this initial project came from the federal government. They had a grant from the National Science Foundation. So it really means that us taxpayers were paying for the establishment of Google. So remember that next time someone complains about all the money that's wasted on scientific research. So these two started off in their dorm room, and then once Backpage became successful, they moved to a garage because they needed more space for the computer. And then by 1996, they sought private financing, and they got $100,000 of venture capital invested in their company to, find, to found this ubiquitous company now called Google back in 1998. Now, of course, Google officially is called Alphabet now. These two computer scientists came up with the term Google for their company as a twist on the mathematical term Google, which is spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, and that is a one followed by a hundred zeros. And basically, they're trying to say that their search engine could search a really big number of web pages on the World Wide Web. After establishing the Google company, Google became the most popular web search engine. Only took two years. And today, Google, or Alphabet, is a Fortune 100 company. It's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. It controls something like 74% of the market shares for web search engines. And Google is almost synonymous with web searching now. Just like Xerox is synonymous for photocopying and Jell-O is synonymous for gelatin dessert. People will just say, oh, I'm going to Google that when I get home. Let's Google it. As you know, Google has branched out quite a bit. They've branched out. In fact, one of the ways they make their money is through advertising, but they also are doing social networking, email hosting. They provide operating systems for smartphones. Google does mapping, language translation, video sharing, instant messaging, and data storage like on the cloud. So Google has really gotten to have a very pervasive influence on technology and social media. Now, there's certainly a lot of complaints about Google or Alphabet Incorporated. For instance, lots of complaints about its aggressive tax avoidance policies. 
it does intensive lobbying efforts in Washington to pursue its own interests. Complaints about its lack of diversity in the company, its cases of censorship, its cooperation with the federal government on surveillance programs, and the general loss of privacy for users of Google. There's been a great deal of criticism lately of Google because of its contract with the Department of Defense in improving the accuracy of drone strikes in other countries because it's helping the Pentagon with its mapping. Another big complaint about Google is the filter bubble. What the filter bubble means is that Google remembers who you are, it remembers where you are located, it remembers your search history, it knows your preferences, so it customizes your search so that it calculates what you are actually looking for. So it does make the search more accurate. It sort of winnows out the stuff that you're not interested in. But the problem with the filter bubble is that it tends to isolate us intellectually. It keeps us from um, being exposed to opposing web pages, opposing ideas, opposing thoughts. So Google is sort of acting like a parent with a child, only allowing the child, which is us, to be exposed to certain things, things that the parent chooses. This could be very dangerous. So let's say you're a Wall Street investor and you Google BP, British Petroleum. Well, you're going to get websites that deal with investing in the British Petroleum Company. But if you're an environmentalist who Googles BP, you're going to get results dealing with things like the Deepwater Horizon spill and other environmental problems that are associated with the BP oil company. So it's believed that this filter bubble that Google is inadvertently, I guess, applying to us might be increasing polarization in our society, that our, each of our information that we get from the web is being tailored for us and it might be challenging us less than if we didn't have that bubble. So that's how we got Google. Two computer scientists combining their intelligence, hard work, creativity, and aptitude for business, and a whole lot of federal funding gave us this internet searching tool that now 1.2 billion people are using. And remember this the next time someone complains about taxpayer money that's being devoted to silly things like government research and development. Thanks for listening to this first episode of How'd We Ever Get That? And keep an ear out for future episodes. Hey, did you hear there's a new species of a spider lurking in our midst? A couple of ecologists at the University of Indianapolis recently discovered a new spider species. It was located in a cave at the mouth of the Blue River in southern Indiana. That's where the Blue River flows into the Ohio River. It's a private cave near the town of Leavenworth, Indiana. I remember this area. Driving through there, there's a very interesting little restaurant called The Outlook right there, looking out onto the Ohio River. Anyway, this new spider is just a tiny little thing, about two millimeters in length. That's something like one-twelfth of an inch. And it belongs to a group of spiders called the money spiders. And they call it money spider because the web it weaves is flat and like a sheet. The scientific name of this spider is Islandia luisi. Islandia, like island. Islandia luisi. 
It's called Louisi because it's an homage to Dr. Julian Lewis, who's an independent scientist in Indiana who originally spotted this spider for the very first time. Now, there are other spiders in the Islandia genus. In fact, this is the 15th species of Islandia, and it's the fifth known species to live exclusively in caves. It's the first Islandia species discovered in the last 30 years. No one knows how widely distributed this spider is, whether it's only in this particular cave or if it's in other caves or not. No one knows. Now, this particular private cave is nothing like the caves you and I are used to visiting in southern Indiana or Mammoth Cave, where they have nice handrails and sidewalks and steps. This cave is wet, muddy, slippery, dangerous to move in. You have to crawl between boulders to, to progress through the cave. These researchers had to crawl through the cave to get to the largest room, and it was in that large room that they actually found this spider. They first found it by seeing the web that it had been weaving between two large boulders, and then they looked closer to actually find the animal. One of the co-authors of this paper declaring this new species of spider that was discovered in southern Indiana, one of these co-authors is quoted as saying, I didn't know what the spider was at first. I just thought it was odd that so many were living within this dark cave with no other spider species around. They collected that spider, they examined them back in the lab at University of Indianapolis, and then over the coming months realized that they had discovered a brand new species of spider. This spider is described as being slightly translucent. It's kind of clear looking. And that's a fairly common trait of insects and other organisms that have spent their whole lives inside caves where there's no sunlight. A lot of cave animals also have reduced eye sizes from evolving inside caves. But these spiders have regular sized eyes, which indicates that perhaps they've only been living in caves for like a few million years instead of hundreds of millions of years. It's believed these new spiders make a living by eating small arthropods, like springtails. Springtails are very common insects. You've probably seen them around your house or garden. These springtails move around by hopping, and so perhaps they get caught in the spider web that these spiders weave, and then they come up to them and uh, wrap them up and then consume them. Don't forget, this spider is only one-twelfth of an inch, so it probably takes a little while to eat an entire springtail. It turns out that there are probably a lot of new species of spiders on our planet just waiting to be discovered and named. There could even be a new spider in the woods near you, or in your backyard, or in your basement. This is one area that citizen scientists could get involved. Citizen scientists are just another way of saying amateur scientists. Now, if you think you've spotted a new species of spider, don't collect it, because you could end up wiping out an entire population. What you really should do is just photograph it. Take a good picture of it, show it to an expert arachnologist, and that way you don't actually have to collect it directly. And then they can go back to your site if they think it's an important find. Hey, maybe they could name that species after you. If you want to see some photos of this little beast, you can find the article describing it. It's freely available on the web in the June 2018 issue of Subterranean Biology. This journal, Subterranean Biology, is freely available on the web. So have a look at it. 
This is a pretty interesting discovery, and I like how it shows there's still a lot of biological mysteries out there on our planet to be discovered. We just need to get out there and look for it. Bye-bye. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us. If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at forwardradio.org. 